last weekend, I actually had the opportunity to do a triathlon. That's where you swim, bike, and run. And for me, this was a really big deal because growing up, I was a land athlete. You know, I played football, basketball, baseball. However, I found out there's a very big difference between being a land athlete and a water athlete. You know, some of you swimmers understand swimming is a very tough sport. I came to find out, and it was funny, as I was training for this triathlon, that some of our students in the, the student ministry, high schoolers, swim competitively on the swim team, and they kept pushing my button saying, Trevi, you got to shave your legs if you want to win this thing. <laughs> I'm like, let's tap the brakes for a sec. I'm a very competitive dude. I still am. However, I'm not that competitive. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's so funny because la- last Saturday, as, literally as we're getting ready to take off in the race, first thing you do is you jump into the water and you swim. And I look at the guy next to me, and he's, he's a little older than me, but I look down and his legs are shaved. <laughs> I'm like, this guy ain't kidding around. But I'll, I'll never forget this. That was the first time I've ever been intimidated by a grown man who's shaved his legs. <laughs> Call me narrow-minded. <laughs> but man, as we, as we took off, I, uh, at first I thought, I got to stay stride for stride with this guy. Like, I'm not going to let my leg hair slow me down. <laughs> but before you know it, this guy's literally like kicking me in the head. We're, we're in a lake. It's black. You can't see anything. So I can't see. I can barely breathe. Like I'm swallowing water. And in that moment, finally it hit me. The race isn't won in the water. I realized for me, my strength was in the bike and in the run. See, I, I had the advantage on the land. However, in the water, I was at a major disadvantage. The, the point, though, I realize now, looking back, is that as long as I tried to beat him on his playing ground, I was missing the bigger picture. Unfortunately, this is how so many of us Christians approach our faith. Rather than focusing on our strength and positioning ourselves in a place where we have the advantage, we dwell instead on our shortcomings and limitations. We drown ourselves in sin management. We drift into despair as we consider our subpar performance as Christians. Our faith isn't based in grace, but shame. I honestly believe that the reason why so many of us Christians are living a defeated life is because we have a wrong assumption about who God is. That wrong assumption then leads to a wrong approach. Our focus, aim, and effort of Christianity centers not on enjoying Christ and all that he is, but by modifying behavior. Ask yourself, even right now, do you measure your closeness to God by how little you've been sinning or by trusting in the unconditional love and acceptance of Jesus Christ? One of the big problems, I think, especially with Western Christianity is that our focus has become getting people into heaven rather than getting heaven into people. There's... A big difference there. We got two claps there. 
But I was, I was, <laughs> I was thinking about that though, like this, this week as I was preparing this, isn't it crazy to think there's no more spiritual warfare in heaven? And I'm not implying that we're ever immune to spiritual warfare on this side of heaven. However, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus teaches his followers to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The point I want to drive home as we dive into Ephesians 6, the armor of God today, is that to put on the armor of God is to seek first the kingdom of God. To put on the armor of God is to pursue Christ and all that he is for us. So as we talk about the armor of God, I have just two simple goals. Number one, that all of us would revise our assumptions about God. And number two, that we would redirect our approach towards God. That we would move, move from a shame base to a grace base in our faith. As Tim laid out two weeks ago, Paul's goal in writing the book of Ephesians is to teach believers to learn to walk in Christ. Our aim then in spiritual warfare should never be avoiding Satan, but pursuing Christ. I think Jesus models this perfectly for us in Matthew 4. You guys know the wilderness temptation where three times the tempter draws near. And remember Jesus' response Notice he does not get defensive. Oh, get away from me, Satan. No, he gets offensive. It is written, Jesus says. It is written. It is written. And then, of course, we know at the end of the story, he does tell Satan, be gone already. But the, the beauty we learn here is that as we are walking in Christ, we will inevitably be standing against the evil one. So as we talk about the armor of God now, I, I know we like to talk about how m most of the armor is defensive, but here's my premise for this morning. The best defense is a good offense. The best defense is a good offense. So let's start in Ephesians 6 verse 12. Paul writes, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So stopping right here, Paul teaches us very clearly the reality of this spiritual war that all of us as believers are engaged in. Apart from Christ, understand you and me don't stand a chance, even on our best day, against Satan and his kingdom. Move on, verse 13, Paul writes, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So, verse 13, basically, because we don't stand a chance on our own, we must employ all the resources that we have in Christ and position ourselves in a place where we have the advantage. To use military terms, we must outmaneuver the enemy, so that in the day of evil, we may stand firm. Now, it is important, talking about spiritual warfare, that we maintain a healthy balance. So, number one, we're not going to give Satan too much credit, but at the same time, we're not going to give Satan too little credit. If Ephesians 6.12 is true, and we believe it is, then the, the, just as 
The, the cold, dark of a winter night should draw us closer to the bright warmth of a fire. So should the cold, dark reality of Satan's kingdom drive us to pursue deeper intimacy and closeness with Jesus. So getting into the armor now, this is the first point I want to make. We're thinking offensively now. Pursue God's truth more than you rebuke Satan's lies. Ephesians 6 verse 14, Paul says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now we know for a soldier, the belt held everything else together. It held everything else in place. A belt implied security. Paul says, the belt of truth. Well, we know based on John 14, 6, that Jesus is truth. Therefore, I think we must all conclude that Jesus is the only one who can bring us ultimate security in life. See, the things we're all searching for at the end of the day, love, acceptance, worth, significance, can ultimately be found in Christ and in him alone. But we know based on John 8, that Satan is the father of lies. His job is to distort God's truth with his lies. Although his methods are often subtle and always deceptive, his, his job simply is to make you and I believe that significance and security in life can be found outside of God. Think about the wrong assumptions we've all made. When it comes to significance, importance, worth in life, we've all thought, well, I'll be significant if I have money and have nice things. I'll be significant if I excel in my career, if I never make a mistake, if my kids turn out well, if I'm included in important circles. When it comes to security, love, and acceptance, I'll be secure if my spouse loves me well, if I'm never criticized, if everyone likes me and accepts me. Whether you've attained your goal or not, the result is usually the same. Temporary satisfaction leading to overwhelming emptiness. Because so many of you have bought into the lies of the enemy, you've been looking to the wrong things to be the savior they can never be. So many of you wonder why you're so empty and so desperate. I can tell you it's because you're starved for a real sense of significance, security, and personal worth that can only be found in Christ. Now, this is why I believe at the end of the day, spouses leave their families for mistress. This is why I believe so many men in the church are addicted to porn. This is why we chase after the lesser pleasures of career and success and material things and people and Facebook and whatever else, because we're convinced that somehow these things can meet my need. I don't think it's any coincidence at all that Paul starts out with truth. When we talk about spiritual warfare, it's not that we need to outpower Satan, but we need to outtruth him. Yet it's impossible to recognize Satan's lies about you when you don't know God's truth about you. Ask yourself, do you spend more time arguing with Satan's lies or clinging to God's truth? 
To walk in Christ is to walk in truth. That is, believe what God says about you as ultimate truth and live it out. And to walk in truth is to walk in the light. Understand, Satan only has power in darkness. So as we start to walk in truth, that is walk in the light, to be known for who we really are, all of a sudden darkness is exposed and Satan's deceptive power is unhinged. Realize this morning you can rest in who you are in Christ because in him you are whole, you are complete, and you are free. Come on. Number two now, pursue righteousness more than you run from sin. Ephesians 6 verse 14, Paul says, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I believe most Christians have a distorted view of who God is. Therefore, they have a distorted view of themselves. So many of us are convinced that God's love somehow depends upon my performance or my behavior. Instead of enjoying Christ then and resting in who he is, somehow we make Christianity about sin management and behavior modification. Now, working in student ministry, I see a lot of this, especially with some of our young men. Now, n- none of the young men in this room, because they're all perfect, but other, other young men, when it comes to the area of sexual purity, I can't tell you how many young men have come up to me, and they're, they're flirting with the lines, and they've asked me, Trevi, how far is too far? Like, when is it actually a sin? Like, we know Bibles, the Bible's against sex, but, you know, how far can I go? <laughs> what I've told them is this, you're asking the wrong question altogether. See, what you're asking is, is this morally wrong or is this sinful? When what you should be asking is, is this going to bring me closer to Jesus? There's your answer. The aim of our faith then is never sinning less, but enjoying Christ more. Until you get that, none of this is going to make any sense. I've noticed in my time here in the South, I've been here for about three years now that, especially in our church circles, we use a lot of cliches, a lot of Christianese. Y'all ever heard any of those cliches down here? Like, I remember I went up to somebody one time and I said, hey, how's it going, man? He's like, well, you know, brother, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I'm like, well, that's cool, but I asked you how you were doing, not who you are. Like, you didn't answer my question. <laughs> But it's, it's funny, though. I mean, when you think about that, do you see yourself as a sinner saved by grace or a saint who still sins? Yes. Romans 5 verse 1, Paul again, he says, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Please get this. You don't have to change yourself in order to earn God's love. You were changed the very moment you trusted in Jesus. 
You were imputed with his righteousness. That means God's righteousness, his character deposited into your account through Jesus Christ. In that very moment, your whole spiritual DNA was rewritten. You became an entirely new person at that moment. So now, living from his righteousness, God wants to mature you into what is already true about you. So, rather than only focusing on running from sin and avoiding evil, why don't we focus instead on learning to rest in who Christ is? For you are the very righteousness of God. Number three now, pursue peace more than you focus on the conflict. Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now hear me out, peace isn't the absence of conflict. Peace is a rest that comes as believers from the divine assurance we have about how things are going to turn out in the end. Yet, I've met so many believers who live their entire Christian lives in conflict. You guys all know, we know the inner dialogue. Try harder. Do better. Fix yourself. Make yourself more presentable, more lovable. Put on more spiritual makeup so that others will like you and nobody will really know you. Think about this. When you spend time with God, do you spend more time rehearsing your failures or enjoying his presence? I really believe Satan would love for you to believe that your peace with God somehow depends upon your performance for God. See, if Satan can make you doubt your peace with God, then certainly he's going to rob you from enjoying the peace that comes from God. Yeah, going back to Romans 5.1, we learn that peace with God, it's not earned, but inherited. And, and the beauty of that is that positional peace with Christ will naturally lead to perpetual peace in Christ. So to walk in Christ is to walk in peace. Now think about it. We've become recipients of truth. We're secure in who God is and who we are in him. We've believed in him and been covered now with his righteousness. Now, Paul says, we can walk in truth. All of a sudden, these shoes become protection against the divisive schemes of Satan. Now, this is crazy to me, but I feel like I've met more critical, more divisive people inside the church than outside. And... I'm convinced, this is my conclusion, that people who aren't at peace with others usually aren't at peace with God or themselves. But Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters. Realize, you and I, as sons and daughters bought by the blood of Jesus, we have peace now with our heavenly father and that should be reason enough to bring us together in unity and truly be the church that he's called us to be number four focus on the object of your faith more than the object of your fear 
Verse 16, Paul says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now understand, these fiery darts usually come in the form of lies, accusations, and temptation, which are intended ultimately to capture your fear and therefore rob your faith. I'll never forget, when I first moved down here and joined the church, those of you who really know my story, you kind of know what I was going through, but you know, I was in a really good place, spiritually speaking, but I was kind of in a place where I was content being on my own, and dating was nowhere on my radar. I had you know, just gone through a divorce, married and divorced within like eight months, and God had really restored me and healed me, but in that time, I was in no place where I had any desire to hang out or date until I met Jeff. So a couple weeks after, I, got, I know that might have sounded really weird, actually. <laughs> just, just hang with me. Um, Jeff was the guy I met in the church, and uh, he and I kind of hit it off right away because uh, <laughs> pray for me. Uh, because we, you know, he and I had a lot in common or whatever. And a few days after I meet Jeff, I get a call from Jeff, and he says, "Hey, man, could you come with me over to Athens to help move my daughter out at UGA?" So I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm free. I can help you out. And we had talked about getting together for coffee and just getting to know each other's stories or whatever. So I agree. I say yes. And after we hang up the phone, I get flooded with like five text messages from Jeff about why he thinks I should meet his daughter. <laughs> and then the sixth message, he, he actually sends a picture of his daughter and he says, this is just for reassurance. I wish I was making this up right now. <laughs> so, of course, I knew Jeff wasn't setting me up for failure. I went, and Brittany and I just, I mean, we hit it off. It was instant, just this chemistry there. But when I left Athens that day, I was like, God, I don't know what happened, but I'm, I'm not going there. You know, this, the timing's not right for me. I'm, I'm not ready for this. So about a week went by and I, I called Tim when I got home and told him like, you're not going to believe what happened, but uh, it's, it's nothing. Just kind of brush it off. And a week later, I, I couldn't shake it. And I went to Tim and I was talking about it and just kind of telling him my heart. And I had sort of a Tim Cash moment. Where he kind of stared at me as Tim often does. <laughs> He said, Trevi, you'd be a fool to not at least pursue a friendship with her. Those are good words of wisdom. So I decided, you know, I was going to take the risk. But even then, I remember the accusations. As I thought about this girl, Brittany, I knew she was pure and whole and innocent. And I thought about my past and how stained I was in the area of sexual purity and just coming out of a divorce. And I'm almost arguing with God, like, God, I don't deserve her. She's pure and she's innocent and she's clean. And it's almost like God just stopped me right there and he said, so are you. 
Now, we've, we've been married now almost two years this, this July, and it hasn't been perfect, but we've had a whole lot of fun, and it's been very fulfilling. But it, it, it all changed for me. It dawned in that moment where I realized the object of my fear wasn't even worthy to be compared to the object of my faith. This is why Paul says, faith is able to extinguish every fiery dart of the evil one because faith is always grounded in reality. Faith is confidence grounded in reality while fear is never really based in reality. Faith is a confidence grounded in the right here, right now reality of God with us and God for us. So, unless we give him permission, the scare tactics of Satan are nothing more than scare tactics. <laughs> However, we got to stop fixating on the fear and we got to start engaging our faith. How do we do that? Well, Paul says, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. To put it simply, I think faith comes by knowing God. And there's a big difference. Some of y'all need to get this because some of you know about God informationally, but you don't know him experientially. See, the less you truly know God, the smaller your shield will be and the easier it'll become for Satan's scare tactics to hit their target and have their effect. However, the more you come to know Christ, the more this shield of faith and enlarges and protects us from the scare tactics of the enemy that in reality have zero power over us. But to walk in Christ is to walk in faith. And faith overcomes every fiery dart, not because of the depth of our faith, but because of the object of our faith. And then number five, I know y'all have heard this before, but I'm going to say it again. Fight from victory, not for it. Verse 17, Paul says, and take the helmet of salvation. Now, salvation implies victory. You and I have eternal victory. We're no longer fighting for the victory, but from the victory that was already won in Christ Jesus on Calvary. However, that does not negate the fact that we're still engaged in a fight. And I think Paul uses the imagery of a, a helmet here to imply that every spiritual battle we face is either won or lost in the mind. If he can just get you to doubt God's goodness even a little bit. That's essentially what happened in the garden. Y'all remember? When, when Eve was deceived, the question that was really posed to her was, is God really that good? Or is he holding out on you? And unfortunately, as we see, a little doubt can cause a lot of damage. It's like, thanks a lot, Adam and Eve. It's interesting, I was reading... Neil Anderson, who writes Bondage Breakers and other really good books on the topic of spiritual warfare, but he shares this cartoon strip, which is kind of just a funny illustration to kind of show how the battle is either won or lost in the mind. And the story is about a middle-aged woman named Kathy, and Kathy's drug of choice, if you will, was sugar. 
Now, as the story goes, in, in the first picture, Kathy decides, I'll take a drive, but I won't go near the grocery store. Then in the next picture, she says, I'll pass by the grocery store, but I won't go in. And on it goes, I'll go in, but I won't walk down the candy aisle. I will look at the candy, but I won't buy it. I'll buy the candy, but I'll wait until a special occasion. Now I get home, I'll open the candy, but I won't smell it. Now I'm going to smell the candy, but I won't taste it. And then finally, I'm going to just taste the candy, but I won't eat it. And you already know how the story ends, right? I don't need to tell you. But what's, what's interesting is that according to Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 10.13, Kathy lost the battle as soon as she decided to go for a drive. We see here the power of an unchecked initial thought. The enemy will use just one thought to bombard our mind. And when unchecked, that initial thought begins to trigger our emotions and our feelings, which arouses the affections and the desires of our heart. Before you know it, we've taken a step in a direction we were never intended to go. And the result, always more guilt, more shame, more fear, the crazy cycle. And most of us who feel defeated, feel defeated simply because we believe we're defeated. The key then to walking in Christ isn't first changing our behavior, but our belief. See, behind every moment of temptation is a flawed assumption about who we think God is. Think about the lies we've all believed in our own moments of weakness. God can't satisfy me as much as this sin can. I've always been this way. I don't believe, God, you're powerful enough to change that. Or there's something fundamentally wrong with me. I don't believe God has been fully good to me. Or I'm going to feel like a failure anyway. I might as well enjoy it. Ask yourself, do you believe that one day you might be changed? Or that by faith in Jesus Christ you've been changed once and for all and daily now you're becoming more like him? I believe it all comes down to whether or not you believe that God is for you. Think about that. I don't care how long you've been in church. Do you really believe in your heart of hearts that God is for you? If so, that's a game changer. Right belief leads to right thinking, which leads to right action. So finally, we get to our close and... We get to the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And most of us in church, we know that is the one and only offensive weapon, right? Well, it's interesting. Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, he tells us that the weapons, plural, the weapons of our warfare have divine power to demolish strongholds. So Paul's implying that we have more than one offensive weapon. Let's, let's read verse 17 and 18. Paul says, in the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So check. And then verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Praying at all times. Now, I'm going to argue this morning that in Ephesians chapter 6, we have at least two offensive weapons, the Word of God and prayer. 
Now, I could spend the rest of my time up here breaking down the power of prayer and the power of God's word. We could go to Hebrews 4.12 and talk about how the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, but most of us have already heard that. See, I think what we need to deal with isn't necessarily our what, but our why. I'm convinced that most Christians who are living in despair and defeat are living that way simply because their offensive game is ineffective. See, when it comes to God's word, we've cultivated a devotional life that leaves life out of the equation. Let me say that again. We've cultivated a a devotional life that leaves life out of the equation. For some of us, we have a devotional life, a few minutes a day or once on Sunday, but what we need is a life of devotion. When it comes to prayer, some of us, we have a prayer life, not much of one, but what we need is a praying life. I I, I believe that so many of us, we approach Jesus not as a way of life, but as a chore on our to-do list. And I also believe that Satan would love to see you settle for treating Jesus as a chore, Check it off for the day and put God on the shelf until tomorrow or until next Sunday. You see, when that is the case, guilt is almost always the primary motivator. And guilt, guilt only tells you what you should do or what you ought to do. Guilt never tells you why you should do it. I've met so many defeated teenagers who who genuinely want to pursue God and they're just like, Trey, I just... I just keep falling, and I just know it's because of my Devo life. If, if only I would just spend more time with God and my Devos, and that constant grace just, or sorry, that constant guilt just leads them further into despair. Yet Jesus, he calls us to something else. He calls us to follow him as a way of life. He calls us to cultivate a life of devotion. He calls us to cultivate a praying life. Instead of guilt, grace becomes the primary motivator. Because I'm loved by God, spending time in his presence through prayer and through God's word is something I get to do 24-7 no matter where I'm at. So all of a sudden, praying without ceasing or hiding God's word in my heart isn't some foreign, distant reality for the spiritual people, but the only reality I know. I want to close by by punching this point home. Practicing God's presence is a non-negotiable because it keeps us in touch with reality. Practicing God's presence is a non-negotiable because it keeps us in touch with reality. The reality I'm talking about is 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, we do not look to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I know for some of us, we we hear a new series entitled, This is War. And we think like, man, that's just kind of weird. Or maybe even a little unsettling. And for a lot of us, I, I really believe we think like, as, as we consider our Christian life, it feels like anything but war right now. 
I'll never forget when I got back from a short-term missions trip to Haiti. I was hanging with one of my good friends who's a pastor. He was raised in Africa, then he moved over here to go to seminary in the U.S. His name is Kondo. Kondo's my boy. And I remember asking Kondo, I'm like, Man, it's just crazy, but why is it that it seems like in the third world, like in Haiti or any other place I've been, that, that just demonic spiritual warfare just seems so much more like out in the open, just evident? He thought for a few seconds, and this was his response. He said, well, in those countries, they don't have anything else. So to be a Christian, you're either all in or all out. Therefore, the enemy a lot of times is going to be much more direct in his attack. But then he goes, here in the U.S., the enemy, I think, is a lot more subtle because he already has most of us distracted by our comfortable lives. Dr. Larry Crabb says this, and this was chilling for me. Satan's masterpiece is not the crack addict. Satan's masterpiece is not the prostitute. Satan's masterpiece is the person who is satisfied with this world. Satan's masterpiece is the person who is content with all the resources that he has to make his life work. And he's enjoying respect and recognition and affection. And he's never broken before God to the point where he lives for no one but God. That's Satan's masterpiece. So for some of you, the fact that your Christian life doesn't feel like a war should be even more of an indicator of how real this war really is. The fact that you appear to be satisfied and sufficient apart from God should be even more of an indicator of how real this war really is. See, the reality of Satan's kingdom must drive us to the everyday 24-7 reality of God with us and God for us. We must allow God's kingdom to invade every facet of our lives. As we walk in Christ then, as a way of life, we'll start to see things the way they really are. Yes, we're in a war. However, I don't think it's ever God's will for warfare to become our focus. <laughs> because we're in a war, our aim isn't avoiding Satan, but pursuing Christ and all that he is for us. So as I close, let's remember the words of Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Learn to enjoy Christ and his unsearchable riches that are available to us through his spirit. In doing so, you'll be able to stand in the day of evil and after having done everything, to stand. Stand.